dispensing wisdom, inciting awesomeness, scaling joy. Welcome to the Mojo Studios podcast. It's time to turn down the deluge of distractions and put yourself in a mindset of receptivity and growth. Absorb, digest, apply, repeat. Dinner is served. Well, hey, everybody, we're live again. This is Joe McCarthy in Mojo Studio with my longtime friend, Robert Bradford, who became uh, a good friend back in college and has remained such to this day. Robert, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. Yeah, it's been a long time. I was starting to calculate, and I said, I I don't want to know. (laughs) At least 35 years or something like that. Yeah. See, I came to SEC, now Vanguard University, in the fall of 80. Seven, I think we were both in this amazing little band of ragtag musicians called Prayer and Praise. Uh, We led worship on campus every Wednesday night, student led, four students, uh, had some absolutely amazing time, both making music and connecting with God and uh, doing something really meaningful and impactful. And that went so well, and we bonded uh, as friends that for several years after that, as long as most of the band was in Southern California, we would do camps and hang out uh, as often as possible. And then Robert and I even got to join another band in Not Of, which is a crazy name, in the world, but not of the world, in Not Of, uh, on a tour of Romania. That was the best. Oh my gosh. What a great, what a great thing for us um, to be able to do that. I mean, it was just after the Iron Curtain fell and all that stuff was going on with Gorbachev and tanks in the square, all that stuff. I, I'm sure you remember when we went into, uh, I think it was Tumashora, the city. You yeah. see all the bullet holes and stuff like that in the buildings. It was an incredible time. They were wide open to the gospel and it was cool, right? We just, we would drive up, you know, park and say, hey, can we plug in? You know, some business would let us run an extension cord out of their thing, and then, boom, we would play, and then uh, we would give our English testimony, and uh, I think it's Paul, right? Paul? Yeah, Paul Marison. Marison. He would translate for us, and that, and then people would accept Christ, and it was great. It was a great Yeah, I felt very blessed to be on that trip because I wasn't officially in the band. I was just friends with the band members, and one of the guys in the band, Lance, was in, unable to come, some some um, crisis going on back home. So he asked if I'd just fill in and I helped run the sound and I even plugged in a microphone to the soundboard and sang harmonies from wherever I was standing. Right? Yeah. Right. And then you had that trumpet, right? Some kid gave you a trumpet and uh, you were playing along. It was, it was awesome. My favorite part was trying to, uh, tri- <laughs> this is terrible, but I'm trying to trip up Paul with the uh <laughs> with this translation by using american phrases uh, right so i just say give jesus a shot <laughs> he's like look at us <laughs> like, how am i supposed to translate that right you know? yeah thanks so, a lot americans <laughs> <laughs> yeah man it was such a good time i remember uh, us being in the in the airport in london and somebody walked up to one of the band members and we were wearing our shirts in not of and said in broken English, in not of, ooh, they're big in the States. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I remember that. We're like, yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only people that really knew about us was 
the four of us and our spouses and a few friends from college at the time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Great times. That cherish those memories for sure. Yeah. Uh, even so, Lori and I talk about it every once in a while because it was so remarkable. I mean, basically, Paul heard us practicing in the basement of Lance's church. Right. And he came down and said, will you go to Romania with me? My country is finally open and I want to share the, co of the gospel with, with people. And if you guys will play, you'll draw the crowd and then I'll share the gospel. Like, okay. You know, yeah. so we, we did. It was fantastic. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Romania had been closed to any sort of religion for generations. Right. So the fact that it was open and we were one of the first groups to be able to tour and play gospel music openly uh it like you said it didn't matter where we plugged in it would draw a crowd because it was it was a novelty it was americans american music gave us a platform everywhere we stood and played uh, to share right our love for jesus and jesus love for those people in romania and man they were, they were soaking it up I, I remember being in the back of that van that was full of bibles they had donated Bibles for us to distribute, and the people would just throng to the van and like reached over right. the top of each other trying to get a copy. Right. Trying to get the copy. That's right. I remember that. To back up a little bit, uh, what's what's one of your earliest memories of you and I becoming friends? You needed a drummer for chapel. <laughs> I think that's what it was. And Alan, um, Alan Gibson, right? He, he was playing guitar for you and stuff. He knew that I played. I think he was on my floor in the dorm. I think that's really how we met, is through the, the music connection. Because I, I was a history poli-sci major. I mean, you and I weren't anywhere in the same classes, per se. I said, well, if Alan's playing, I'll play, you know? So yeah. we, we started playing there, and I was going through a pretty hard time. My father had just died my first semester into college and that, and I was really struggling with that. I had a just such an awful time. I was so angry and upset with God and everything like that. And uh, your, your friendship to me through that period was huge because I, I wasn't great to be around, you know, because I was a little more edgy than perhaps I needed to be just because I was so upset and stuff. And I would just say I'm super grateful for how you took me in. You were my friend regardless. Occasionally you'd pat me on the head, you know, it's going to be okay, Robert. <laughs> yeah, I've been really grateful to you for a long time for that. I'm not sure you're really aware of that or not. Uh, yeah, I, I knew just the surface level of the story. I didn't know all that was going on, but uh, like you said, I needed a drummer and you were available and highly recommended. And as I look back, I, I can easily say with no reservations that God was handpicking us to be on that group together. That's There's many, many remarkable stories we could tell about those days. But just to think of that experience, that shared experience of rehearsing, making music together, you know, eating, joking, shubas, everything in between. Right. Uh, <laughs> created lasting friendships, right? Here we are decades later and uh, picking right up where we left off. I agree. Yeah. And uh, many of the people who have met me before know that I grew up and was raised in Montana. So here's the irony. I'm sitting now in my backyard in Orange County, California, and Robert is in Montana. <laughs> what are you doing in my stomping grounds? A college friend of my wife, like her roommate, they've been involved in this Glacier Bible camp 
uh, her and her sister, we went to college with them and they were begging us to come. And I, I just didn't want to drive 20 whatever hours to do that. But finally I told Lori, I said, fine, okay. We'll go once, okay? And then she can shut up. <laughs> yeah. I really want to do this at all. Man, we got here and just the extreme beauty of Flathead Valley and the, that area of Hungry Horse, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's just outside of uh, Glacier National Park, so you can imagine the beauty in that. So that was it. We came, we've been, this is our 16th year coming. Uh, we missed twice. One uh, one was COVID because they closed the camp, and the other was when we moved to Texas from Santa Fe. We drove, we flew, we did whatever we did. Our, our kids bonded with uh, our friends' kids here. And then as a dad, right, I saw God moving in my kids' hearts and, and mine and just how much uh, the presence of God was at this camp and the camp meetings and the speakers and so we we've been coming here i didn't realize didn't dawn on me that you've probably been coming to this camp for for however long you lived in billings right i mean how many years did you come here so glacier bible camp uh i have super fun memories because our youth group even though we were in billings we would join the youth groups all over the state for both junior high and high school camp just a week of outrageous fun beauty of god's nature and some really intense uh spiritual times where i mean it was just undeniable presence of god in a very tangible right a physical way you could just sense it thick well when you've had those <laughs> experiences that are so overwhelmingly powerful right it's really hard to say there is no god because you right. felt you felt him in, a, in just in your throughout your body Right, absolutely. I mean, it's the, the concept of the childhood faith, right? A lot of times, a lot of kids, we're, we're seeing this all over the place now, right? That kids, they go off to college and their childhood faith isn't strong enough anymore to, to help them that all the stuff that they're getting from their professors and other people and, hey, don't you want to do what's fun and, and all that stuff because they their, their childhood faith isn't strong enough. And all of my kids have experienced God through this camp in a way that's that's undeniable for them. That bridges that gap of the childhood faith to be, um, no, I know God's real. I've seen God do this stuff. Uh, Mariah's, uh, her back was healed. She looks at me and she goes, how would I know if, if I was healed? Well, I just felt a, a significant pinch in the middle of my back. Myself, when we got back to the room, you know, I had her scan and I, your back straight, you were healed. You know, I've uh, often said that you can argue theology till you're blue in the face and that rarely changes anybody's mind, but you can't argue with my experience, right? What I experienced is what I experienced. And when, when you experience something that you can explain in no other way that makes any sense other than the omnipotent God made himself intimate in my life. Well, that's, I mean, that's the end of the story for me. That's, it's transformative. I don't need any arguments. I don't need any convincing. It just, yeah. it's a knowing, right? It goes from beyond right. hope and believing to just knowing. And that's what relationship is really about, knowing the other person. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, several people that 
grow, raised up in church, have some faith. They go to off to college, whether it's Christian college or not. Um, at some point, just kind of decide that it's not really not for me anymore. Uh, it's like I love the faith of my parents. I've got other things that are priorities now. Um, but that is not the case with you or me, that your faith has continued to be a foundation for your life and through your marriage and the ups and downs and the struggles that life inevitably brings. What would you say has been kind of that anchor for your soul? Well, this is going to sound terrible. I believe I'm God's favorite. <laughs> yeah, explain that. I love it. Explain that. I, I believe I'm God's favorite. I, I was the youngest in my house, and I was the favorite kid by my mom, mostly because my three sisters were running in muck pretty badly. You know, my dad was an evangelist and uh, did a, a tremendous amount of ministry prior to his death in, um, in 84. And uh, I... I don't know how to describe it, but I, I always felt that God understood that we were getting left fatherless and that he was taking over and being the father. And, and I witnessed so many things in my life after that time where it's just God was coming through. And even during the time that I was so disgruntled and stuff, God still blessing me and still doing things that empowered us forward in our in our relationship together as, as a married couple as well as uh, financially, you know, with my job. And so I, I believe strongly because I witnessed all that stuff that God truly loves me. He's truly taking care of me. And it, we've had our times, don't get me wrong, but the faithfulness of God has been incredible in, spar in spite of the hardships we've had to deal with. I would say it's that. To go back to your sentence that I feel like uh, I'm God's favorite, I yeah. think that from God's perspective, he would probably say, you are. And so is Joe. And so is Lori. <laughs> and so is, I, I think we're all God's favorite. And, and that's a, a wonderful way to look at God, our Father, that He right. He sees each of us as His favorite. I just think that's a, a great right. way to look at it. That helps helps shape your understanding of, right. of who God is and, and how you relate to Him, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, transition a little bit. How did you get into this ride for the light? What is it, and and how has that journey unfolded for you? My my father-in-law bought this bike. Okay. And he spent like two grand on this bike. And in my head, I was like, they have bikes at Walmart for 200 bucks. I can't believe you've spent that much money on a bicycle. Crazy. Yeah. Like, so he bought that bike and then he bought another bike. Anyway, he was done with this bike, this $2,000 bike. And he said, do you want this bike? So I was like, yeah, I'll take it because then I'll sell it. And <laughs> But so I got the bike from him and I got on it. I rode it. And I was like, oh, I understand why it, it's a $2,000 bike. I mean, this thing was fantastic, super light, carbon fiber, all the stuff, right? So so I started riding it, and uh, my buddy, uh, Eric Montoya in Santa Fe, he said, hey, there's the Santa Fe Century ride coming up. We should do it. And I'm like... I'm not riding this thing 100 miles. Are you kidding me? I haven't even ridden it 20 miles. Okay, so we did a few short rides, and then I did the Santa Fe Century, and then he says, hey, there's a bike ride coming up. It's 500 miles. I said, no. 
I am not doing 500 miles on a bicycle. You're out of your mind. Right. That was, uh, I think 2012 was the first year this occurred. And uh, I didn't do it. I was, I was just, I was like, you're out of your mind. Uh, but I kept riding and I was riding back and forth to work and I, st I started to thin up and uh, I started to look better. My wife was like, that. the next year came up and uh, Eric approached me again. He said, come on, man, you got to do it with me. We, we, we need to do this. So it's a fundraiser for Speed the Light, which is a group that comes alongside of missionaries and uh, people already in the fields, right? They're, they're struggling to keep their support and all that stuff, but then they need a vehicle or they need a clean water well or they need something, sound equipment, whatever. And Speed the Light comes along side of them and then and provides that. So I said, okay, fine, you know, I'll do it. And uh, it was a great, one of the greatest experiences of my life. There were four of us that did all 500 miles I think we raised like 14 grand or something like that. And uh, it was also New Mexico's year of the 100 year flood. So we had 300 miles in rain and probably 150 in, in a full rain, like a downpour. We were soaked. We were putting our feet into plastic bags, trying to, I mean, it was, we were soaked. That uh, was your first ride? Yeah. That was the first ride. How many days is the ride? It's five days, 500 miles. So we leave from the top of the state on Monday morning, like around Aztec, Bloomfield, Farmington. What's the elevation there? I think that area is about 6,000 feet, I think. The first few days are a hard day because we're in the bottom part of the Rocky Mountains, right? So we cross the Continental Divide, which um, I think is like 7,300 feet. So there's, there's like 50, 5,400 feet of climb the first day. Then it tapers after that. So day two, I think was like 2,600. And then you get to the bottom part of the state and it's like rolly hills, you know, it's pretty flat. It's five days, 500 miles, top of the state to the bottom of the state. We ride through Roswell and all that, come out um, at the Texas border. That first year you're in a flood, you've never ridden 500 miles before. I can only imagine that you wanted to quit a hundred times or more along the way. Is that true? I told Eric on Tuesday, because this was Eric's bad idea, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I told Eric, I looked at him when we got into Albuquerque, we were at this bike shop. Someone, one of the guys had a problem with his bike. I looked at him and I said, I do not want to ride in the rain. <laughs> he looked at me and he sort of walked off. You know, so yeah, there were several times, probably day three was super hard for me. Literally, Joe, it was so cold. We were so wet. And there was a point where we were going through the city and the cars were just going by us and they were showering us, you know, just with water. It was awful and it was cold. At the same time, there's this overwhelming sense of we got to ride all these miles. We have to accomplish this task. We are raising money to impact people. So there's no quitting. It was very hard. Yeah, it was. So go back to there. You, you're you're at this point where you want to quit, mm -hmm. but you feel this compelling reason not to. And tell us a little bit more. What was the compelling reason in the ride that just kept you going, no matter how how awful the condition conditions were? 
I want to say it's two things. Number one, I gave my word. I gave my word to everybody who gave that I was going to do all these miles. And I'm, I'm kind of big on that. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I don't care. And whatever it takes, I, I'm going to keep my word. So that was, that was a big play for me because I really did want to quit, but I was not going to. I'm not a quitter. So kind of that aspect of it, this sucks. So I'm going to tell everybody it sucks, but I'm not going to quit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm like the sons. There are two sons, right? So the son that complains, but then he goes and does the work. Yeah, that's me. But then the second thing really is the value and purpose of what we are doing and why. Why we are doing this. When this started, uh, the DYD at the time, Gerald Dickinson, he had so many missionaries on the list they didn't have vehicles they didn't have stuff they needed he came up with this idea to try and fulfill uh the need of all these missionaries i'm big on purpose this was really really important to me to to accomplish it because of my word but also because we're trying to impact lives and change the world that's what really compels any of us to do something we don't want to do. One, I'm going to be true to myself, and mm -hmm. one, the other is I'm going to have an impact that is greater than whatever pain I put in, right? The, the return on investment, to use a business term, is really high when you continue to see what the results will be. And tell, tell people a little bit about what is the impact when you, you've raised funds, and I, and I understand, I've heard that you're like the chief fundraiser. You've become like the passionate guy that make sure everybody knows and everybody gives and you are enrolling as many people as possible. What's the impact of what you guys are doing? In 2015, we rode for Convoy of Hope. So Convoy of Hope, you know, obviously disaster relief is a big thing for them. How Donaldson and his brother Steve started Convoy. So Steve wanted to start this rural compassion um, because there's a lot of a lot of people in these villages and small towns and and that 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 they just get overlooked even though there's huge drug problems and i mean the whole thing it's as bad per capita right and so steve wanted to do this rural compassion thing which basically would allow allow a missionary to, to come into these small rural towns bring together the city leaders including the church leaders and the city leaders and basically say look guys you have resources you have you have things that you can do to solve the drug problems and that that's going on in your little town and so they do this the missionary comes he does the thing and then my boy sends a big semi truck and they do this huge distribution to the people in the in that community we bought their first vehicle so we we rode and we bought this you know thirty-five thousand dollar whatever panel van kind of thing you know one of those tall ones like a fedex one right we bought that and uh and the missionary that that is driving that thing rode with us he actually did the ride with us you know and so we we bought uh rural compassion i think by now um we bought them five vehicles and then the other thing last year we did was uh, we par uh, Speed the Light is partnering with uh, World Serve International, which is uh, Doug Pitt's, Brad Pitt's brother. We put five clean water wells in Ethiopia with, uh, with the money we raised last year. So 
I mean, it was a record year, right? I mentioned like the first year I wrote, we raised about 14. So we raised, we raised 198,000 last year. And in one uh, ride. And one ride. And we had like 30 riders that time, you know, which makes a difference. But we impacted 20,000 people. And clean water is, I mean, you're not just dealing with bloodborne pathogens and uh, waterborne diseases and stuff like that. You're dealing, you're revolutionizing a community because yeah. they have access to clean water. No one's scavenging or, you know, just all this stuff. So we've done a lot in that. And I'm trying to raise 20,000 this year because if I hit what, if I can get 20,000 this year, then I will have raised 100,000. As an individual or as a group? As an individual. This is the thing, Joe, and, and it's what I tell all of these guys. Like, ask people, but you need to pray. Pray about that person. Talk to God about that person. Then ask that person. And then follow up when they say yes. You know, I mean, just, you know, but if you're not praying, then you're not opening the door for God to move on people's hearts. And every time I mean, I send an email or I do any of that stuff, I'm praying over that thing to make sure that <laughs> I'm still God's favorite, and He's going to help me out with these people, right? right, right. And we're going to raise we're going to raise as much money as we possibly can, so we can have the greatest impact. That's right. It's all about the greatest possible impact. It's yeah. it's remarkable, Robert. And first of all, I just want to commend you as my friend for pushing through all of the roadblocks along the way, both the ones that were physical and the ones that were emotional and mental and spiritual, because mm -hmm. I'm sure you faced all of those. And so let me ask you this, does it get any easier? Does the 500 miles track get any easier from year to year? Well, this is what I've learned, Joe, is that it's the time I have, I put in ahead that makes the ride easier. So I've already ridden, I think I saw my thing, I've ridden like 1,800 miles already this year in training. And there were a couple years where I didn't ride as much, and it was a lot harder. So as long as I invest in myself, in my training, and make sure that I'm doing that, when the ride comes, it's not that. As I hear you talking about riding and the mission that you're on, the impact that you're having, um, I can't help but think that, Riding, especially in a team uh, situation like this, where it's you have to do all your own work individually, but then you you enlist other people to come with you on this journey. Um, right. To me, this seems like a pretty rich metaphor for our life, right? For the journey of life that we have to do it individually. We have a lot of responsibility on our own, but it's also a much better when we enlist others along the journey as well. So. Yeah. As you think about it, have you gleaned any lessons from being a long distance rider, especially in these 500 mile trips and, and the relationships that you made over the years that that you think is a great metaphor for, for how to learn to live, especially the walk of faith? Definitely a, a ton of stuff. I mean, uh, even just the simple, you, you gotta keep pedaling, you can't quit. There's a, there's a hill coming out of uh, Bloomfield called Nine Mile Hill. And it's nine miles up, and it's brutal, <laughs> you know. And, and as a cyclist, I mean, if you've seen the tour or any of that stuff, you know that they, there's a lot of drafting. You know, you try and get behind somebody and drafting. So there's a, there's a huge team component and a dependence in terms of working together. We're accomplishing this together, especially what we're doing because it's a ride. It's not it's not a race. 
So, you know, there's that aspect of, of collaboration and teamwork and you have to be smart. You can't you can't be the one that's pulling so much, you're out front so much, then then you're no good to anybody. You, you get trashed and then you get dropped off the back end because you overcommitted because you wanted to be the man or whatever. I mean yeah. so there's there's an element of humility that goes in with that. You know, the other thing is shifting. And I tell you what, uh, there's a huge parenting application in terms of shifting. For Nine Mile Hill, I mean, you can't, you try your big gears and you're trying to force your way. And I mean, you're just not going to last. You're just going to burn yourself up. And your your larger muscles don't recover as quickly. So you've got you to figure out, how can I go as fast as I can, as far as I can, with the least amount of effort? And, and shifting gears makes that's a huge, huge thing. Uh, being able to shift, and there's been several times with my own kids, we're we're fighting a battle, and uh, you know I can tell by the struggle that it feels like Nine Mile Hill. <laughs> this just feels like this is really, and I need to I need to shift. I gotta shift my perspective. I gotta shift how I'm dealing with this, and I've done that a bunch of times. Even as I listened back to how you got into this in the first place, your friend Eric uh, said, "Come on, let's do this," and you're like, "No way!" And they pushed 100 miles, and then 500 miles, and now you know you're out in front of the pack, and you're you know you're teaching the others how to do it, and you're enlisting people to to give and be part of the. The impact that you're making but if it hadn't been for eric back in those days right. saying come on let's do this right not have experienced any of that right? right it's absolutely true and eric is a great guy you would love him me and i planted a church together in uh in santa fe uh before we moved to texas he's an incredible person and he's like that he wants to get everybody involved right he wants to get a, a group of people moving forward seeing seeing past their roadblocks to you know what they can accomplish if they apply themselves if they invested in themselves eric's also the reason i have credentials this guy i swear he says to me have you ever felt like you had a call to pastors i'm like shut up <laughs> why are you bugging me you know why are you throwing all this stress on me <laughs> you know and that's what he did uh joe he said I'm going to the school of ministry. You can ride down with me. Here's how you sign up. I'd love to do it together with you. I, I actually, I prayed about it and it was probably the fastest answer I've ever gotten in my life <laughs> that I should do this. My sister had been harassing me for a decade. You know, you're called to be a pastor. You're called to be a pastor. I'm like, okay, well, if God opens the door, I'll do that. And I, I've done some stuff, but I wasn't, uh, credentialed. I've been a teaching director for community Bible study for six or seven years, uh, but not with credentials. So my sister was very pleased. I think of uh, how this applies to mentoring. I think we all say and even believe that a mentor is valuable, both to have one and to be one. But you've, this is a very tangible story about when you've got someone who believes in you and challenges you to do something beyond either what you wanted to do or you believed you could do, then you can accomplish great things. And then when you get to that point, you get to turn around and grab some other people and say, hey, why don't you join me, right? So I've said in conversations over the last, gosh, since COVID, I think, some of these conversations I've had where where it's dawned on me finally after all these years that 
there's a lot of things in life that I can do by myself. I can do alone, but I don't want to anymore. Right. I, I was the self self-contained self-sufficient guy for all those, all this time and realize that that's not nearly as rewarding, as fulfilling, as, as enjoyable as being on the journey with brothers and sisters and friends who, uh, you know, who can help pull me when I'm on the backside of the, of the group and, and push me when I'm on the front. It's true. I think the, the biggest thing about the ride is, is the camaraderie that occurs. Uh, I don't think any of these guys, when they first started this thing, realized how it was going to bring a lot of their youth pastors together, because a lot of youth pastors were riding the community and collaboration that would occur. And I, I would overhear conversations of guys talking about problems they were having with their youth group and what did the other guy think. And and when you're riding like that, you have a lot of time to talk, you know, just riding next to somebody and how's it going and the stories you would hear and the depth of, you know, people's situations and, and all of that uh, happening at the same time. It's just, it, it was huge. It was huge for me. To mentor is to invest in someone else, to empower them to to achieve so much more because you're so much further ahead of them. You know, with my dad being gone, you know, I parented myself. I didn't have a dad. I didn't, and I didn't have men that I could really reach out to that I could relate to and, and help. So all my parenting, all the kid stuff, just all of that stuff like that, you know, yeah. I, I did on my own and uh, it was really tough. And uh, I, I wish that I had had like who I am today to be able to turn back to me and, and mentor and empower me uh, all those years ago. So it's a big thing. and. You know, it helps us, it helps you as a mentor. You grow and mature and you're mentoring somebody else um, and, and the investment you're making. So I, I, I recruited three riders from Texas this year and they're riding with me and one of them's 30 and uh, he's got three kids and his dad's not in good shape. And it's a huge opportunity for me to invest in this place. Yeah. and to empower him and help him understand that God's on your side. But yeah. It's been really, really good. So I, and I tell him all the time, you can do more than you think. That's a message that uh, when it comes from somebody who you can trust, that can be transformative when someone says, you got a lot more in you than you think you do. You can go farther, you can go faster, right? Than, than you ever thought you could. And then right. perhaps you never would have told yourself that or believed it if you had, but it comes from the right person at the right time and it can compel you to do remarkable things. Right. Well, to be honest, it's it's scarier. It's scarier when you're on your own, you know, because now I'm going to try and do this thing and I, I don't have any support. I don't Who am I going to lean on? Yeah. Who am I going to ask for help with this? So I'm going to be a lot more tentative and I might not do it at all because it's too scary. Yeah. But if I have a mentor and somebody who's walking with me, I am far more courageous because I've got somebody's back. I got someone who'll tell me when I don't understand what happened, you know, to help me and move me through those things. It's a big deal. One other component that you have mentioned that just dawned on me, I didn't even thought it through before you said it was uh, the amount of time that you spend together on the ride allows for these much 
deeper, richer conversations where it's not just the surface talk, right? How you doing? Great. How are you doing? Okay, good. Right. And then you're on your way. But <laughs> you got you got hours. You got nowhere else to be. Hours. It turns yeah. out to be where you get into conversations that really matter. You're talking about things that that really matter. Yeah. For some, including myself, even if I know how important a mentor can be, I'm like, where do I find one? Right. I, right. I want a mentor, but I. You know, it's not like there's a mentor phone book and I could just go on the Internet and say, find a mentor. That would be dangerous. This is one of the great values of your local church can be you get into a a community, right? A community of people with like like mindedness, similar faith and values. And then it's much easier in in that setting to be able to identify people that, hey, I have I have a lot in common with you. I really I like where you're coming from. I, I, I see a lot of wisdom in you. Uh, and right. then you, have, you then there's that hurdle, that roadblock, as we talked about before, of actually asking, could you want to share, you know, some of the wisdom of your experience with me? Very few, I would say, no, I'm not interested. You're on your own. Most, most of the guys, even those are super accomplished and have done remarkable things, they find great value and affirmation in someone asking them, for their opinion how how did you get there what lessons could you share with me and and it's amazing how that that's like a magnet for people who because we do want to share our knowledge with others right right absolutely we i've certainly seen a lot of success in a small group uh arena you can get some of the older guys with the younger guys and and be successful in terms of creating some relationships um, that way and, and we have to find like-minded um, in order for for mentoring to really work. And I would say, say another right field for harvesting uh, those type of relationships is in these type of activities, like the biking, the triathlon. I hear people say, I don't go to the triathlon for the enjoyment of, you know, <laughs> of how hard the, the run and the ride and the swim are. I go because of the community. I get to hang out with other people who are they're going to accomplish a goal that they never thought they could accomplish as well. And, and then right. they just create these relationships out of, this is what some people call affinity groups, but rather than starting at a church and looking for a men's small group, you start with a group of people that do the activities that you like and that you have in common. And then, like we said, with the time spent, then you start to identify, oh, here's, yes. here's somebody you can, I can really learn something from, or here's somebody that I can really help along the way. Right. Yeah, that's actually very true. There's a Plano Bike Association in, uh, in Dallas area there. Um, they they do so there's like 200 cyclists in this group and they have all the different rides and and i've done a bunch of those rides for training and stuff like that and uh, i finally said you know i'm gonna go they always go to this burger place after and i sat with these guys and we're talking to them i'm like this is good you know we're talking about riding and talking about this and that and then they're sharing some of their life stuff and that so there's some opportunity there for that kind of stuff like that yeah i, I agree on that some people would say it's how you find your tribe i'm just so glad that we've reconnected that we get to share these conversations and for That's those that are tuning in um we have some plans in the work to do some future discussions about life and marriage and family and things that we've learned along the way either by doing it wrong or by doing it right <laughs> things that we you know we've learned from mentors but also learned the hard way and things that god yeah. teaches us even along the way and so i look forward, look forward to having those conversations with you as well yeah that'd be awesome and i just want to encourage you again that 
that life is like a ride. You, you do have to invest in yourself. You have to train and be prepared for the hardships that inevitably you'll face. Uh, prepare your heart, your mind, your body, and your spirit. And also engage with others who are on that same journey. And, and you may find yourself going farther and faster and accomplishing a bigger task and having really ultimately a bigger impact both on your own life and the lives of those around you because you did. So it's well worth the investment. It's true, man. It is true. So on behalf of Robert Bradford up there in Montana and my old stomping grounds uh, and Joe McCarthy here in Orange County, thanks for tuning in. We look forward to talking to you again. God bless you all. all If this episode was beneficial to you, be sure to pay it forward, sharing it with others who may need a boost as well. Until next time, dream big, start small, act now. Thank you for tuning in.